I'm John Edwards, lute player and artistic director of the Musicians in Ordinary. You're listening to an excerpt from La Magdalena, a bass dance thought to be by Pierre Blondeau, a singer and lutenist active at the French court around the time that Anne Boleyn was there. And you can hear this piece complete at the end of this podcast, which is part of a series of podcasts supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Spem in Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and York University on the Anne Boleyn Songbook and its context. A painter active in the early 16th century in the Low Countries, known to us only as Master of the Female Half-Lengths, has a number of pictures of young women singing, playing the lute and the flute, and in some of those pictures, the music in front of them is the chanson Jouissance vous donnerez, which is also among the pieces in Anne Boleyn's songbook. Diane Williams, professor in English at York University and Killam Research Fellow, has been working on the Anne Boleyn songbook and, more generally, on girls as book owners and performers in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. And she and I talked about the shared context of these pictures and Anne's songbook with the art historian Professor Matt Cavaller, director of the Centre for Reformation and Renaissance Studies at the Centre in Victoria College at the University of Toronto. Uh, So, Matt, who was the master of the female halflings? Probably not his real name. Well, we don't know what his real name was, but he seems to have had extensive contacts with two major cities in the Netherlands, Antwerp and Bruges. He may have studied first in Antwerp in the shop of Joost van Kleve, who dominated Antwerp art in the 1520s and 30s, but he seems to have gone to Bruges and has taken up the kind of uh, glossy, slightly out of focus, Gerhard Richter (laughs) type of of surface portrayal uh, that was popularized by Adrian Isenbrandt in Bruges, the leading painter in Bruges in the 1520s. It's interesting that he painted not in Brussels or Mechelen, the two leading aristocratic cities, but in Bruges and Antwerp, which were the two leading bourgeois cities, the big commercial uh, industry cities and financial cities of the Netherlands. And so the Low Countries already by then, it's, it's trade and uh, industry, as you say. It's more like a merchant class. Than, yes. Than the nobility were quite important, even in both cities. They held most of the major civic offices, more so than most historians and art historians like to concede. Mm-hmm. But they were relatively less important than the leading merchants, the leading businessmen of the city. So the uh, guilds and the big traders, the offices of the Fugger had their little uh, cambia in <laughs> Antwerp and Bruges. Um, the Hansa still had offices in, in Bruges. And um, the big international merchants were forced to reckon with. In a way, they weren't so much in Mechelen, the court city, and Brussels, the traditional Burgundian court mm-hmm. city. Which is where um, Margaret of Austria... Mastri- Margaret where? of Austria had her uh, court in Mechelen. Mm-hmm. And many of the high nobility maintained a little pit a tear in Brussels <laughs> because many of the Habsburg court uh, offices 
took place there? Uh, well, Anne was uh, Anne Boleyn was b uh, briefly working at that court. We, well, we say working because she was in training as a courtier. Uh, there was her first, I'm going to say, appointment. Right. right. Margaret of Austria was a kind of a mentor for Anne Boleyn, kind of a mentor and teacher, and that was a. I think kind of her third career after, <laughs> um, you know, various marriages, uh, none of which produced issue, um, all of which produced dead husbands. She kind of <laughs> gave up on that life and proceeded to live in this kind of regency context, right? Um, and supervising the education of these uh, children of the nobility uh, and of royal families and their, and their upbringing and education. It's also interesting that she was sent uh, to the Netherlands to learn French, to perfect her French. Right. And Mechelen and Brussels, the court, those are Flemish, those were Flemish-speaking cities. Mm -hmm. But the court and high society was exclusively French-speaking. Mm -hmm. Whereas Antwerp and Bruges were bilingual at the upper society. Flemish was just as important there. And that's an interesting distinction. There's also a famous, uh, very beautiful collection uh, from uh, Margaret of Austria's uh, court of uh, Bastances, a dance manual with the choreography, and there's black pages with silver mm. writing and gold yeah. writing. It's not the sort of thing that, um, you know, Guillaume the viola player is going to be playing off. He's he, definitely a big presentation piece, very beautiful for um, aristocratic dances to be learned to. Now, among the props uh, that the, uh, the females in the female half-lengths uh, have, one of the props that they've got in many of these pictures is an ointment jar, which has uh, suggested to some people that it uh, might be uh, Mary Magdalene, the, who being who's depicted in these. Would you want to tell us what you think about that? Um, yes, I think it's an interesting suggestion um, Mary Magdalene's courtly life was almost never depicted. I see it much more as a complex overlay of associations. I think the woman playing the flute, singing, or at the virginals in a painting by Anne van Hamerson, was meant to be read first as a well-bred, wealthy young woman, either the type of daughter you would like to have or the type of woman you would like to court. But then comes the ointment jar, with its inevitable associations of Mary Magdalene. I think I see it as associated with the momento mori, that is the sign of death that one sees after the fact and makes one suspicious of uh, too unalloyed joy mm -hmm. in a wealthy, sumptuous existence, voluptuous existence. So I see it as really a kind of secondary association that complicates the image and makes one suddenly suspicious of one's acceptance of the social level of imagery. And I think in, in it's that sort of it's almost backwards from some of the contents of the Anne Boleyn songbook, which are uh, there's a lot of adoration of the Virgin Mary in there, and uh, some Song of Solomon texts, uh, Secret Lilium. Is, uh, is an antiphon mm -hmm. for the Assumption of the Blessed yeah. uh, Virgin at Matins, uh, is a text that's in there, which is, and so you'd say, oh, this is liturgical church text, but it's also a lovely love song. So it's, uh, right. it's a, a religious thing that we can also see as a lovely love song, 
uh, and you're saying these are uh, pictures of lovely young women doing fun things and but oh but wait she might it might also have a religious dimension as well I think so the ointment jar was overdetermined we see that many of these jars suggest the epitome of Antwerp goldwork and Antwerp goldworkers were very famous for competing with the French gold workers, like Cellini. So I think that could, at least on first cast, also be seen as a sign of the enviable luxury of this household. <laughs> it didn't have to be seen as a sign of the Magdalene. Mm-hmm. So it's handy to put that in because it's a conspicuous consumption yeah, for exactly, a rich exactly. merchant as well. But I think that conspicuous consumption also works in a religious discourse, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So that an ointment jar, a jar of cosmetics is something that has a symbolic value in the Bible, like going back to the daughters of, of Job, after his fortunes are restored, one of his daughters is, is named after a, a, a cosmetic box or an ointment jar or <laughs> eyeshadow. Her name is uh, Karen Hapuk, right? And, and so the idea there is, I think, again, that kind of reminder, right? Job's fortunes are restored. He has right. these three daughters as an right. emblem right. of the fulfillment yeah. of, of that living the dream, right? Yeah. But um, it's also a reminder of the potential to fall and, and the potential right. for, uh, for those worldly goods to be taken away. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, yes, yeah, so there, so whether or not she's Mary Magdalene, there are in the Anne Boleyn songbook, there's a couple of motets, um, uh, Maria Magdalena and the other Mary uh, going to the tomb, and there's uh, Jean Mouton motet on, uh, in, in that time, Mary uh, went to the tomb, and mm-hmm. the angel says, he's not here. Uh, so there's a, a correspo- possible correspondence there. Although, as you say, there's a chance it's just conspicuous consumption. Well, or, go on. I think it's all of these things at the same time. Yeah. I don't think it's, there's a one-to-one identification. I think that made it such a popular image because there were so many possibilities of reading it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Stephen Orgel has referred mm-hmm. to, he's described the notorious profligacy of Renaissance imagery. And I think that's a really good phrase for yeah. what you're describing. Yeah. for that sense that these images uh, and symbols are, uh, are placed as part of an ongoing discussion yeah. uh, with multiple, multiple reference um, and multiple discourses. That's very interesting, yeah. Other props that she has apart, uh, these women have apart from their uh, lutes and flutes, uh, some of them have books, some of them are reading books, some of them are writing in books, like you'd want a good marriageable daughter to be able to do. Uh, Deanne, do you have any thoughts about their education, uh, the education of young women in um, uh, this period and the Renaissance? Right. Well, it's interesting that 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 all of the images we're talking about, all of the um, sort of accessories that um, Mary Madeline is associated with, the ointment jar, which we've just been discussing, but also the lute um, and the book, they all have these kind of dual references, right? On the one hand, gesturing to a kind of a worldly worldly goods, and on the other, to a religious discourse. And I think that's precisely the kind of fine line that is being walked when we're talking about girls' um, education in the 16th and 17th century, right? We have 
the desire for daughters to be participating in a world of courtship, of love, uh, which will ultimately result in marriage and babies and the, and the lineage continuing. But on the other hand, it's very, uh, there's a deep concern with uh, a kind of a religious propriety, religious education, the spiritual education, which um, the which mothers will be will be presiding over, and uh, and so girls are um, are working in in both of those realms, the worldly and the spiritual. And the lute is a really beautiful emblem of those of those two things. On the one hand, we have its uh, its curvy female shape, and there were a lot of jokes about that in the period mm-hmm. about what does it really mean to be playing on a lute? Yeah, Rabelais um, has something like that. A, the, the, a player on a lute when it's, it's actually making jokes about this man being a bit of a rogue with ladies. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, and the uh, and and the and the quiet the quiet strings of the lute, right, evoking a quiet seductive voice but also the the intimate environments the domestic spaces in which they are performed places where seduction uh, can occur so the lute embodies all of all of those associations but on the other hand musical education especially of the kind you see in the Anne Boleyn manuscript is about uh, praising God um, and music is understood as providing access to uh, the the divine harmony uh, of of the, of the spheres and the planets and 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 God uh, mm-hmm. a way of, of accessing that perfection and so they really do occupy both of those those spaces and so children uh, like like Anne Boleyn or like the girls we see depicted here by the master of the female half lengths are, uh, are 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 given the opportunity to to learn the lute as a kind of an emblem of the ideal woman that they are supposed to become. The, I'm reminded of what you're saying reminds me of the text of Gentil Galland in, um, in which one of the chansons in the drinking song in the, uh, in the Anne Boleyn songbook. It's, you know, come on, let's go get drunk. And the main point is, though, that the woman, the landlady who's serving them their booze, she's a, we've got a, a generous woman is at the center of that text as well. And um, uh, they say, the, these drinkers say, oh, don't worry, the landlady is a generous woman who's going to provide for uh, us. And we'll, if we haven't got enough money, we'll uh, give her a credo which sounds like, uh, you know, I believe in one God, uh, but it, it's also an IOU. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of a religion, again, even in this the drinking song, there's a generous woman and there's a, a, a credo sort of pun on uh, what you're going to uh, do to get your booze. Right, those two worlds keep going back mm-hmm. and referring yeah. back to each other. I mean, the Anne Boleyn songbook has all of these religious... Uh, songs at the at the beginning, and then the the more secular songs are there, but they are there at the end. They are the bookends to uh, to the uh, to the collection. So we do think these are sort of um, pictures of daughters, uh, probably of uh, rich merchants and uh, industrialists, sixteenth century industrialists, rather than um, just a, a picture of a pretty young lady to put on your wall. Or did they become that 20 years later when uh, went to secondary market? I think they were that too. All They're of not above. just daughters, but again, uh, fiancés type. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that, in fact, one of the effects of, of the master of the female halfling style is kind of blurring of outlines. The lack of portrait-like specificity 
is that mm -hmm. there's a kind of one-size-fits-all. You can almost imagine these young women being anything you want in, in, in the circumstances of your life. Uh, and I think that ha has a lot to do with his popularity. Even Jan van Hemersen, who occasionally comes close to him, although in a, in a far more sophisticated manner, is, um, particularizes the features in a way which makes these images less amenable to the whole variety of interpretations. So I think that's an important part of, of the Master of the Halflings pictures, that you could read into them the type of woman you wanted to see. Mm -hmm. Well, as I've said, the, uh, among the props are these uh, lutes and flutes um, and music books and music sheets that they're playing from. In a couple of the pictures, there's a famous, uh, the two versions of a, of a trio of uh, young women playing. Uh, in both of them, they appear to be playing uh, the chanson, which is in the uh, Anne Boleyn songbook towards the back, Jouissance vous donnerez by Claudine de Semizy, text by uh, Clément Moreau. And uh, you can see very plainly that that's what they're singing. In, in, one, uh, in one of the two trio pictures, uh, the flute player has the melody in front of her. Uh, the lute player has not got anything in front of her, but she's presumably playing the tenor and bass parts, uh, intabulated. And there's what would appear to be a singer in the back. She's got uh, another piece of music entirely, so it's not, uh, it's just like he may have just handed out the props and said, here, uh, girls, pretend to be singing and playing. Uh, but it's a bit, so it's a bit peculiar that they're holding different pieces of music. But in one of the trio pictures, they've all got the parts assigned as you'd imagine: the um, lute players uh, playing the tenor and bass, the flute players playing the alto part, and uh, the one of the women, possibly is probably a singer, is standing there with the melody in her hand, uh, mm. which is exactly it's a very typical way, particularly being doing an Italian frottole at the time would be a very common way to set up the pieces uh, in that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also in um, uh, one of the pictures, um, the lute player, she's got in front of her the music, the staff notation for Jouissance Vidonare of the tune of that. And then on top of that is the lute tablature, six lines with letters showing you where to put your fingers. She's got the tablature of the two lower parts of her chanson, Si J'aime Mon Ami, which is only in one manuscript. Uh, it's so it's very haphazard how these things survive, but it's not in any of the later printed books. It's in a manuscript from about 1506. And she's yeah. sitting there playing uh, the lute part for that. Again, her mouth is closed. She's not singing, and she doesn't indeed have the melody in front of her. Um, it's difficult to depict people singing because they just look like they've got their mouth hanging open. And, and uh, sometimes when people do have their mouths hanging open, one discussion of uh, performance practice uh, about singing uh, uh, says they, they appear, their faces appear tense, which is what, exactly what you don't want to do. If you're a singer, you don't want to be singing. It doesn't make a good tone. So uh, it was suggested in this um, discussion of early music performance singing practice that this the where we see their faces tense might just be the artist trying to um, depict something happening rather than just a slack-jawed singer sitting there with their mouth open so that these girls don't have their mouths open I don't 
think demonstrates whether or not or they were singing or not. No, I would agree. And I don't think artists felt the need to be realistic in the way that we expect. Mm -hmm. Erasmus, for instance, counsels young boys not to hold their mouth open. That that's a crude, peasant-like thing <laughs> to do. Um, so I think one, one can see in these young women, the proper young women, if their mouths were open, they would, they would seem to be boorish. So I think that's an important thing to do. Mm -hmm. Important aspect of, of the phenomenon you raise, yeah. I think it's interesting that, um, that Clément Marot, um, mm. Claudin de Sermizy, these are people whose paths she would have crossed. They were at the field of the cloth of gold. They were in the court of Claude de France. Um, mm -hmm. they, were, they were around. And so she is performing or, or dancing, um, along with Margaret of Austria, to mm. the music of people wow. that they were, they were personally, yeah. personally uh, uh, known to them. And Clement Monau was already in trouble for eating meat during Lent in these <laughs> days, which shows him he's already down his proto-Protestant uh, path. I think he was imprisoned for heresy yeah. eventually. Yeah, he got yeah. into a lot yeah. of trouble yeah. with mm -hmm. Margaret of right. and, and wrote the, much later, somewhat later, wrote the uh, Genevan Psalter, uh, the pre paraphrases of the Psalms, which became so influential. Um, I, I, I would like to uh, just pick up on an interesting point that Matt made about um, the uh, uh, artistic representations of Mary Magdalene um, not, not representing that courtly aspect of her life, that we have a range of artistic representations of Mary Magdalene that represent her as a penitent, covered in hair, praying in the wilderness, and so on. Um, because there are d dramatic representations of Mary Magdalene in that courtly mode, and I just think that that's a, a, an, an interesting, an yeah. interesting thing. Yeah, um, it really the, is. Yeah. yeah, the Digby play of Mary Magdalene, uh, for example, a 15th century uh, um, morality play, um, goes in great detail about that courtly life. There's a long uh, opening section where she's in Marseille and there's the king and queen of Marseille and she's doing a lot of courtly stuff and she's in a garden and she's being seduced and that whole world is intensely dramatized before we see uh, the penitence. And it's interesting that I believe there are other dramatic examples as mm -hmm. well of, um, of that aspect of Mary Magdalene's existence. I think literature, because it's an extended narrative, mm -hmm. is able to portray many more events. Mm -hmm. Religious imagery tends to be quite restricted. The um, mm -hmm. uh, one Flemish uh, art historian referred to it as the straitjacket of religious imagery. In terms of the stories that are chosen as iconic images, is extremely restricted. And if you want to study visual narrative, it's much better to look at stained glass or tapestry in which there are a greater variety of stories from the Old and New Testament, from classical antiquity, from the Battle of Troy, for instance. And one sees a far greater uh, number of subjects and also narrative techniques. Because religious paintings uh, are primarily geared to altarpieces, when they're not altar, even when they're not altarpieces, the function and manner of presentation is rather limited. Texts have traditionally had a much greater variety of subject matter and uh, approaches. If I could say one other thing, I think it's important to realize that 
even from a religious context, the woman doesn't have to be Mary Magdalene. She can be Mary Magdalene-like. Mm-hmm. And that Mary Magdalene was simply the ultimate prototype for a type of behavior that advocated renunciation. So one of the most famous plays in Antwerp in the 15 teens and 20s is Mary of Nijmegen. Mary of Nijmegen is sent by her aunt to visit her uncle, and on the way she gets seduced by the devil and uh, enjoys a, a, a very sumptuous tavern life until she renounces this uh, life of sin. So she's not actually Mary Magdalene, but on the end, if we make that, but she's Mary Magdalene-like. And there are many figures like, uh, that are sim- similar to this, which provide a whole kind of panoply of possible life uh, 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 mm-hmm. approaches to the view of these things. I think if we say she is or isn't Mary Magdalene, we simply come to a full stop. But what does Mary Magdalene mean? So yeah. we have to see the larger behavioral context in which this is advocated. Uh, there, is, there is a picture, I think from slightly later, which has a, a woman, a slightly older woman, has put her, her lutes in its case. Yeah. And the lute is cover, the lute case covers the music, and she's got a prayer book in her hand. In fact, Mary Magdalene is a biblical example. So she is the biblical reference for what is hoped to be a variety of real-life real behavior mm-hmm. in this world. So I think it's, even that is important to see in a kind of rich, uh, composite of possible approaches to life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the, la, the song Maria, the popular song oh, yeah. from the West Side Story. Right. Sing it loud, yeah. and there's music playing. Sing yeah. it soft, and it's almost like praying. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maria represents <laughs> yeah. all yeah. of those, uh, yeah. those different aspects of yeah. life. And, and that is reflected in the fact that there are so many different Marys as well, right? right? right. All yeah. representing this. Yeah. Who, uh, of Gregory the Great. Facets crams together <laughs> most and, of them. And that's what really makes it relevant. Yeah. If it's simply a biblical reference, okay, if I read the Bible, that's fine. But, <laughs> but if it's extended into a variety of real-life behaviors, yeah. Yeah. then it becomes both resonant and relevant. Well, whether or not, or to what degree, these young ladies are or are not uh, Mary Magdalene, and indeed, we know Mary Magdalene, I think in one of the, the plays, uh, somebody says to her, come on, uh, Mary, let's have a dance. Mm-hmm. And we know that Anne Boleyn must have danced some, danced some vast dances, perhaps from this uh, manuscript at Margaret of Austria's, uh, from Margaret of Austria's court. And slightly later than the Anne Boleyn songbook, in one of the Attignon loot books, is the Bastance La Magdalena. Uh which I'm going to play for you now. That was me, John Edwards, talking to Matt Cavaller and Deanne Williams. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you use to fetch podcasts and consider giving it a good rating and review on iTunes. You can also support these podcasts by searching for The Musicians in Ordinary at canadahelps.org and making a donation, which is tax-deductible in Canada. Now here's me playing the Baston Suite La Magdalena, probably by Pierre Blondeau, published in 1529 by Pierre Attignant in Paris.